The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. In Lent, we have two major themes that we're following in the Bible. And the first theme is that like Jesus, we are fasting and praying for 40 days in the wilderness. Facing Satan, the one who tempts us face to face. Praying and fasting and dealing with the evil forces in our lives. This was the theme that Deacon Darrell preached on last week as we focused on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And this week we enter into the second theme. And that theme is with Jesus journeying towards the cross. Counting the cost of following Jesus, leaving behind things that we cannot take with us, once again abandoning the promises of the world for the promise of the life in the world to come. In John 10, Jesus makes a very bold claim. He says this. He says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He came that we could have life, not just meager life, but life to the fullest. I was thinking about that Third Eye Blind song. (laughs) I want something else to get me through this semi-charm kind of life, baby, baby. Not that kind of life, but an eternal kind of life, an abundant life, a life to the fullest. And doesn't that sound good? Well, how do we get this life, Jesus? And in Mark 10 today, in the gospel that our deacon read for us, we find out, Jesus tells us, It's the promise of life through voluntary death. Jesus says to us, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want life, you have to walk with me towards the instrument of death. There is an inscription on the door of an ancient monastery in Mount Athos, the Greek Orthodox monastery, and it says this, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you?
believe this. Is it really true? This is the message for us from Jesus this morning. And the difficult work for us is to believe. Is to believe him and to trust him. I want to take a few moments together to reflect on this text. Our reading this morning began with the verse saying this, then he began to teach them. And of course, if ever we see that word then, we know there's something that just came before this that's going to be important to know. And this is what just happened. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and Jesus says to them in verse 29, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Messiah. Now this is a big moment. It's the first time one of Jesus' followers has acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah, the person in whom all of Israel's future rested the one whom God would accomplish his purposes of restoring his people. And this, friends, is a powerful confession in the faith of the identity of Jesus. In fact, I think it's the biggest question you'll ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? And when asked with the biggest question that he would ever face, Peter actually gets it right. And it's an exciting moment for the disciples. They are ready to rejoice in this newfound reality. And just as they are about to start their victory party, Jesus jumps in and begins to teach them something new. Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed after three days, and rise after three days. Jesus says, here is the surprise, Peter. Yes, it's true, I am the Messiah, but that word doesn't mean what you think it means. The Messiah will be rejected and killed and resurrected. And so the text tells us that Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. You guys ever do this? Try to set Jesus straight about something? Jesus, stop speaking like this. Actually, you don't know what you're saying. By definition, messiahs or winners. They are God's chosen instrument. And if you've been chosen by God, you won't have to suffer. And this is often how we think, right? If God really chose you, you will always be getting a bigger paycheck. More and more people will love you. You will never get fairly untreated in your workplace. All your children will be perfect angels. Life will get easier because God loves you and chooses you. But the text tells us, Jesus turning and looking at his disciples, he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, 
For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus' most dedicated disciple, Peter, becomes the Satan, the tempter, the one who opposes God's plan. Peter becomes the person that would derail the Messiah from his mission. And when we think of Satan, we're often thinking of some kind of personal evil force, some fallen angel that tempts us into sin, and that is true. But in our gospel this morning, it's inviting us to see how we ourselves are like Peter and how we ourselves can become the Satan. We do this when we project our own human wisdom onto what it must mean to be the Messiah. We try to make Jesus like us. We try to make Jesus into a 21st century liberal American like us or a 21st century conservative American like us. Pick your association. We imagine that the Messiah must conform to our latest understanding of psychology and social sciences. We want the Messiah to conform to the logic of Wall Street or Silicon Valley or rural America. And we recreate the Messiah in our own image and according to our ideology. But friends, it turns out that the wisdom of the cross is not the wisdom of the world. And the cross stands in opposition to all our best ideologies and exposes them as idolatrous. My problem is that over and over again, I am tempted to set my mind on human things and not divine things. And I sometimes regard Jesus from a worldly point of view, and in doing so, I despise his cross and the cross he calls me to. And so God's invitation to me and to us this morning is to believe that God is saving the world, not only from suffering and death, but also through suffering and death. Now, it would be a wild thing if Jesus had stopped here with simply, yes, I'm the Messiah and the suffering and the Messiah must suffer. That would be wild enough, but friends, it gets wilder because Jesus does not stop here. He goes further and he turns to us in the crowd and he invites us to follow him to our own deaths. Verse 34 says, he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what can it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their own life? And so I wonder 
what does the cross look like for you? <laughs> we have this invitation. Take up your cross. Follow after me. What does the cross look like for you? Well, I think one way to begin to answer that is to actually ask, what does the cross look like for Jesus? I've got a little visual here for you, for all of our visual learners. Thanks for the help, Deacon. I'm just going to put it up here as a reminder as we speak. Sometimes when we think of the cross, we think of the singular event as Jesus is just up there suffering. But it encompasses a lot more. There is the physical and emotional suffering of the cross itself. There is the injustice of it all, right? He doesn't deserve to be up there. But there is also the rejection of an ecumenical group of trusted religious believers. Think about it. A group of religious believers that couldn't agree with each other on a lot of things, they could get together and say, well, we don't agree on a lot of things, but we agree that this guy should be put to death. The kind of people that the people would trust. It means defeat by God-defying enemies. Think about how this makes the God of Israel look when your Roman pagan oppressors are putting you to death. It means abandonment by his closest friends and followers. They did not follow him there to the end. It's the betrayal from a beloved friend and confidant. And finally... It's a humiliating death. And if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What does my cross look like? Well, what did Christ look like? Why is it that sometimes we follow Christ and sometimes we are surprised? to find ourselves experiencing some of these very things. I want to share with you a little bit from a book that I recently finished that is so good. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue, and I encourage everyone to listen to it on Audible because it's read by the author, and it's such a great book. And I want to tell you a little bit about it. It's actually about an Iranian refugee family that comes to live in Oklahoma. And it is biographical, written by uh, Daniel Nayiri, who was eight years old uh, when he first came over. And it's written in the voice of a fifth grader. And it really has a great touch. And actually, I would encourage you, if you are here and you're in fifth grade or you're in middle school or high school, to read this too because it's very accessible uh, but brilliantly written. And I'll give you a little background before I read for you an excerpt. He's going to talk about his mother, Seema, who was living what we would consider a really great life 
in Iran. She was an educated doctor. She was wealthy. She was successful. Had a really beautiful house. Was from a very prominent family. Uh, her ancestry is called Saeed. And what this means is that she is a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. And so anyone with this blood in the country of Iran is treated like royalty. And so just by her virtue of her very birth, she is wealthy and is well-treated, is well-connected. She has uh, the clients where she lives absolutely love her. And then one day something is going to happen to her life that is absolutely catastrophic. It's going to ruin everything. And that is while she was on vacation in London uh, for the wedding of her sister, her oldest girl, who is older than Daniel, but at the time she is eight while they're in London, gets hurt and then she goes into a room. And while she's in that room, she has a vision. And Jesus comes into that room and says, everything's going to be okay. Now, this little girl doesn't even know who Jesus is, and there are no pictures of Jesus in Iran. And so this encounter that this little girl has completely changes everything. And Daniel says that after that, she began to read the scriptures, and she had to deal with it. And by that, he means Christianity. And by the way, this whole book isn't all about uh, Christianity and conversion. So it's really wild that you get into the very middle of this book and suddenly uh, this pops up. And I just want to read it for you as he talks a little bit about the story of his mom and what happened. And when my sister walked out of the room and said she met Jesus, my mom knew all of that. And when, when he says knew all of that, means that knew that she was a Saeed and that if she converted in Iran, uh, the committee would put her to death. Um, one for converting to Christianity and one for doing it uh, from the royal bloodline of Muhammad. And here is the part that gets hard to believe. Sima, my mom, read about him, Jesus, and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everyone to have what she had, to be free. To realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, the, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And she believed. And when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the nice house with the birds in the walls and all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had and we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say... What my mom says when people ask her, she looks at them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe? It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family 
and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than anything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That or Sima is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake, but she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Saeed. And now she's poor. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees. With a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. And she tells you, it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it. Keep grinding our teeth on why Sima converted since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're here hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. And you can be certain she's dead wrong. But you can't make Sima agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And the whole story hinges on it. Sima, who was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the revolution, who studied the Quran the way very few people do, read the Bible and knew in her heart that it was true. I want to take a moment and think about when Christ called Sima the things that he was calling her to die to. Sima's cross involved the loss of her home and her homeland, the loss of her wealth, the loss of a respectable career. She experienced downward mobility as she came to the U.S. and had to work in a factory. The loss of honor in a society. She went from being a Saeed to being a refugee that is spit on. The loss of the acknowledgement of her educational attainment. The loss of her husband who divorced her. The loss of her physical safety as she was threatened with her very life by the Iranian government. The loss of her safety as she went from a safe place to being in America where she got a new husband who beat her and essentially lives her life as a despised refugee now in Oklahoma. And life to us, as it would seem, got way worse for Sima after following Christ. You might have hoped that after she made a decision to follow Jesus, that things would get easier and less complicated. But this is not how it works. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And since the day that Jesus said these words till this very morning, there has been a nonstop steady stream 
of men and women like Sima who believe the good news and joyfully take up their crosses. And the story of Sima challenges me. Sometimes I can start to feel sorry for myself. Sometimes I imagine that I am giving so much for the sake of the gospel. And because of that, God should protect me and keep me from all injustices and bless me materially. And here's the issue with me. I am so like Peter. Over and over again, I read the gospel and I practice Lent and I remember the story of the cross. And yet I forget that it's supposed to be this way. That following Jesus involves embracing the weakness of the cross, involves painful rejection, and means being considered less than. But Sima knows that the promise of the gospel was not that if we believe in Jesus and trust in him, everything is going to be okay and everyone is going to be nice to us. Jesus literally says, if you want to follow me, you have to. Take up your cross. It's going to cost you everything. The promise is you can live forever if you die today. If you die before you die, then when you die, you won't die. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what can it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Sima found a treasure in a field. She sold everything and with joy went out and bought the field. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free. To realize that with Jesus, all you have to do is believe in the one who died for you. Sima was ready to die for Jesus because she knew Jesus died for her. Because it's true. So what do we do with this invitation this morning? What do we do with the invitation to take up our crosses and to lay down our lives and to follow Jesus? Maybe here this morning, you are where Sima was before Jesus appeared to her daughter and before she studied the scriptures. Maybe you are not in a spot where you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you need to know a little more about the gospel Maybe you need to experience him for yourself. What might be the next steps for you? I encourage you possibly to consider maybe joining one of our neighborhood groups and find some folks to read the Bible with. Spend some time opening yourself to the possibility of God in prayer. Maybe you're here this morning and you already believe. Maybe you're like me. You say you believe, but you feel challenged by this message. 
The call to embrace hardship on the road to Jerusalem feels scary. And maybe you're having second thoughts about following Jesus if it's really going to cost you. Here's a thought. Jesus doesn't call us to journey to Jerusalem alone. We journey with him and with each other. I don't want to die alone. Let's die to ourselves together. Let's take up our crosses together. Together, hand in hand, let's move forward to the promise of eternal life through the cross of Christ. Amen.